Good to be with you guys. Uh, excited for our text this evening. And I, I want to say from the beginning, let me just move this back because I'll, I'll trip over it. And then that would be, that would go viral on YouTube though. Pastor trips off stage. That would be wonderful. Don't wish for that online community. Glad you're with us. Glad you guys are here to worship with us and join us together as we uh, practice together this act of worship on Sundays where we sing together, we pray together, we give together, uh, we give our attention to God's word, we surrender our hearts before God. And this evening, that's exactly what we do when we come to the text. So when we sit under a sermon, it's not you listening and finding a few things to grab onto, it's you engaging God's word and allowing it to pierce your heart as God has pierced my heart with it this week, and together as God's people, we're formed out from it. And so we're going to be journeying through another passage that is uh, quite difficult for many. If you were with us last week, you know that we talked about uh, the famous cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and that was, that's a difficult passage, and we wrestled through it together. And this week, we're doubling down because we're in one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 22, which goes by different names. It goes by the binding of Isaac or the sacrifice of Isaac. So this is the story. Maybe you've heard it before. If you were raised in church, certainly it's maybe been preached or you've heard it in Bible study. Uh, the kids' version makes it very, uh, you know, platonic and it's like not too uh, hor horrific and shocking. But in reality... What we read or what it feels like it's saying is God is calling Abraham to take the promised son that he's been waiting his entire life for, 25 years for the fulfillment of the promise. And then as he, he and Sarah have this son, God calls him to sacrifice him. They're like, wait, wait, wait. This is in the Bible? Yes, this is in the Bible. And it's difficult to work through. And many people come to passages like this, and they really struggle with it. It's not the only passage in the Bible that causes us to wrestle through. But what I want to ask you to do tonight is to do something I've been saying over and over again over the past couple weeks, which is this. Do not deconstruct from something that claims to be true. We, I believe the Bible is truth. It claims to be true. Don't deconstruct from it. Wrestle with it. When I was a kid, I grew up in church, and many of you have heard my story before, but growing up in church does not always equate to believing in what the Bible says, right? Some of you know that. I grew up in church, but I, and if you asked me if I believed in God, if I believed in Jesus, I would have said yes, but that meant nothing to me. I mean, I was culturally conditioned to believe in Jesus and God because that's just like what you're supposed to believe, I guess, but it didn't mean anything. I didn't really believe it. And I can remember as a child reading this passage, Genesis chapter 22, and thinking, this is a problem. Like this, I don't, I don't understand this. And then the pastor or the Bible study leader would try to spin it, you know, and say, well, listen, here's what it's all about. Yes, it feels like God is, you know, asking Abraham to take his, his son who he loves. There's, the son's name is Isaac, which literally means laughter, brings joy to his heart and to Sarah's heart. They've been waiting forever. And God is calling Abraham to sacrifice him. But look at Abraham's obedience. He follows God. He has this blind faith, just trusting God. And because Abraham was obedient, God brought no harm, spoiler alert, upon Isaac. And if you're obedient, God's gonna, he's not going to bring any harm to you. So I'm like, wait, wait, wait. So, so if he wasn't obedient, then God would have had Abraham kill his son? Like, I have an issue with that. I don't understand. I, I can't understand a God that would, would command that. I can't understand. A, this is the Bible. 
I felt a lot like Thomas Jefferson, who famously took the Bible and cut stories out of it because he didn't like them. And I was like, let's just cut this one right out. You know what I mean? Abraham reaches for the knife. I'm reaching for the scissors. You know, like, let's cut it out. Maybe you feel like that. Maybe you've worked through that. Maybe there's passages in the Bible where you've read it and you're like, this one needs to come out. Maybe you haven't ripped it out of your Bible, but you skip it every time. You're like, don't ask me about it. I don't want to think about it. But what I want to say to us and encourage us this evening in this text, but not just this text, in any text that you read, in any sermon that you listen to where it feels uncomfortable, it feels problematic, it feels confusing, is don't deconstruct from truth, wrestle with it. Instead of grabbing the scissors, figuratively or literally, grab the magnifying glass and really look, really look into it. And so before we, we dive in, I, I want to kind of set the stage on something that I've, has just been a conviction on my heart over the past week, and I feel like it's important to share, because it applies to this passage, but applies to the whole Bible, and that is this. Sometimes people interact with the Bible, or they interact with church, and they say, I cannot believe that this is truth. I can't believe it's the inspired word of God. I can't believe that it is, you know, incapable of error, that God inspired, you know, these people to write these words, and it's, it's perfect, and it's absolute truth. I can't believe that because I read these passages, and I read these stories, and these events, and I have issues with them. And I don't like how I've seen certain people interpret them. People have used the Bible as a justification. This is true, right? Let's be honest. They've used the Bible as a justification for bad behavior and bad thoughts and a lot of wrongdoing and a lot of destructive actions. It's been harmful. So people take that and they say, because people have interpreted passages and parts of the Bible in certain ways and it's been destructive and harmful and hurtful to people, therefore, I can't believe that it's true. So I want to ask you this question. Is it the fault of the text or the interpreter? Because the narrative here in Genesis 22, and this is for the whole Bible, the narrative is not what's dangerous. The narrative is not the problem. The problem is the interpreter. You see, I think one of the things we have to come to understand about the Bible, and this is true of all great literature, is to understand the intention of the author, it takes work. You can't skim read. You can't just look through it real quick and be like, don't like that, especially because the Bible is written originally in a different language. It takes work. You have to really dive in. You can't read it shallow. You can't just go off of what somebody else told you. You have to really dive into it. And when you dive into it, you see the intention of the author. Not just the author who penned these words, which is Moses, but also the great author who inspired Moses to write exactly what he wrote. And you're going to see that tonight in, in this passage, which is problematic for many. But that's true of all literature, and so you don't need to be afraid that the Bible takes the work of interpretation. I'll give you a couple examples of why this is true, not just in the Bible, but in general. So a couple dec I think two decades ago, you know, 20 years ago, it was famous that churches, I've, I've mentioned this before, churches were like all about telling people that they should not read Harry Potter, right? Maybe you grew up in home and all you wanted to do was read Harry Potter, and you weren't allowed to because it's witchcraft and it's sorcery, you know, it's of the devil, so don't read it. 
But why did people have that position on Harry Potter? Well, because most people either never read it or they just skimmed through it. And they're like, this is, this is evil stuff. There's kids on brooms and there's spells. There's all kinds of weird stuff going on. Christians should not read this. But if you actually work the text, if you really read it, guess what you, re- you see J.K. Rowling is telling a story about? Spoiler alert, it's been two decades, okay, guys? So if you haven't read it, plug your ears now, but I'm going to tell you what happens, okay? It's a story of the power of death and resurrection, how sacrifice actually brings salvation, of what friendship and courage really looks like. It's not problematic. It's actually quite beautiful and quite powerful, and there's so many other layers we could get into. We can nerd out after if we got any Harry Potter fans. Here's another example, Plato's Republic. Plato's Repu- Plato was a, a Greek philosopher. He was a pagan. He had a very questionable lifestyle. And he writes many other books, but Plato's Republic being one of them, kind of the, his chief work. And many people would say, don't read that because it's pagan philosophy. It's dangerous. It's harmful. I'm going to tell you this. Outside of the Bible, there are few books that have formed the way I think like Plato's Republic. Why? Because when you read it, you can see that through common grace, there's actually beauty and truth found in different places. Not on the same level as the Bible, but certainly there. He speaks about justice and friendship. In fact, if you look at history, Plato was a few hundred years before Jesus was born. Plato is really setting the stage for the Messiah in a Greco-Roman world. That's why John, when he writes his gospel, he starts out and he speaks about the Logos. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was God, and, the, and it was with God, right? Why? Because people believed in Plato, and he spoke about the Logos. John is addressing Plato's Republic and, and Aristotle as well. It's amazing. When you work it, when you dive in, and the same is true here. The same is true in this story. It's not what it appears when you just read it on the surface. And I hope that we see that together this evening. Because the Bible, what happens when when these things crumble, these stories crumble in our hands, is because many of us were raised, maybe you're still here, and I hope to move you away from this, we're raised to believe that the Bible is primarily a moral guidebook. It's a rule book, it's a manual for life, it's helpful teachings and principle and wisdom, and so that's why you should read it. So you can kind of pick and choose what applies to you, what you want to skip, what you want to cut out. You don't need a magnifying glass on the difficult passages. Just find the things that you think will bring flourishing and benefit you. If you think like that and you believe the Bible is that, this story will crumble in your hands and many others. That's not what the Bible is primarily about. The Bible definitely speaks on morality and it speaks on commands that God tells us of what it looks like to live a a life that is honoring and holy and good. Yes, true. But the Bible from the very beginning to the very end is about one thing, the testimony of the Son. There's one central figure. There's one person that it points to from beginning to end. Can you guess who it is? We're in church. You know his name. Say it out. Jesus. There we go. That's always the right answer in church, guys. Jesus. It is. The testimony of the Son. Jesus himself says that the whole Old Testament and the prophets was about him. It's all pointing to him. It's all about him. It's no different here. Genesis chapter 22. So with all of that in mind, let's kind of bring the right lens to this text 
the lens is this is a testimony of the Son. It's not a moral guidebook at all. It's a testimony of the Son. Here's what Genesis chapter 22, starting in verse 1, says. We're not going to read it all together because I want us to move slowly through the narrative. It's the way that the author intends us to engage with this. Verse 1 says this. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Okay, let's stop there. It's really important to notice. The very beginning, we're given this like kind of beginning of verse 1 before God speaks to Abraham. And it says that after these things, God tested Abraham. Now listen, Abraham doesn't know that. So this is given to us, the reader, We are supposed to know, before we read the rest of what takes place, that God's intention here is to test Abraham. Now, the word tested is also important because what that word means is not that God is trying to put him in a situation where he's going to be tempted to choose wrong. He's not being enticed into evil. That's not what the word tested here means in the original language. It's more akin to God is looking to strengthen him. He's teaching him something. So the testing is about strengthening, not about opening up an opportunity for him to fail. That's important because that's how God tests not just Abraham, but us as well. If you look in the New Testament, you see two types of testing. One, 1 Peter tells us that Satan tempts us to destroy us. So there are temptations in life that come at you, and the intention of the temptation is to cause you to agree with it and follow it so that it will destroy you. And we know this because when we fall into temptation, we face the consequences of that action, right? That's the reality. But when God tests, the book of Romans says, he looks to strengthen us. God's testing is about strengthening It's about revealing. It's about teaching. The same is true here. So through this account, God is testing Abraham. And he's going to test him through his son. The the focus of this passage is on the son, the testimony of the son. It's Isaac. It repeats the word son many times in the passage, so you're focusing on him. So who is Isaac? Isaac is Abraham's son. Abraham and Sarah had this son God promised 25 years ago, actually longer now because he's grown up. He's maybe a teenager by this point. He's the fulfillment of God's promise to them. Through Isaac, the nations will be blessed and God will bless and eventually salvation will come. He is so important. He's the hope of the world. He's the promised son. That's who Isaac is. Remember that. He's the promised son He's the fulfillment of what God told them so long ago. He's the hope of the world. Through Isaac will come all of the blessings that God has promised. The nation that will come from Abraham's lineage comes from Isaac. And the passage tells us here in verse 2, read with me. It says that when God speaks to Abraham, he says this. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So a couple things jump out there, right? We're we're pulling magnifying glasses up. Now we're not just skim reading. It says, take your son, your only son. Now, if you've been with us, there's a problem there. Is this Abraham's only son? No. He has another son named Ishmael that he had with Hagar. 
Ishmael is actually older. So this is not his only son. This is his only son with Sarah, but it's pointing your, your attention to who is Isaac. He is not only just the only son of Abraham and Sarah, he's also the only son of the promise. He is the one through which God is going to work. And then God says, take him and offer him up as an offering in a very specific place, Mount Moriah. Now, two things there. It's interesting. In the passage, especially in the original language, God never tells Abraham to kill Isaac. Remember that. He tells him to offer him up in worship. Now, Abraham assumes that that's what's kind of taking place because the way that they would offer animals, particularly lambs and goats and other things, to God was through a sacrifice of that animal on an altar. So God tells him to offer him up, but he never says to kill him because this is going to be a journey. If he said just, you know, kill your son, then he would just take a knife and kill his son. But he didn't say offer him up on a specific mountain, the mountain of Moriah. Now remember this, okay, we're holding on here. Mount Moriah is where Jerusalem will be one day, okay? Take your son, your only son, the son of the promise, and offer him up as an offering and an act of worship on the Mount Moriah where Jerusalem will one day be founded and still is today. That's what happens, and Abraham is going to respond. We know now that this is going to require radical faith. For Abraham to respond appropriately, demonstrate the quality of his faith, the depth of his faith, I mean, this seems absurd. This is illogical. Why would God ask Abraham to take the promised son and offer him as a sacrifice on this mountain? This is absurd. This is illogical, and Abraham responds. Verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. So here's what's going on. Abraham hears this from God. Okay, God, you want me to take my son, my only son of the promise, Isaac, and go to this mountain and offer him? as an offering. Now, here's what God is teaching in this entire story, okay? You ready? It's this. Faith is living in the tension of God's promises and the temptation to doubt them. That's what faith is. It's living in the tension of God's promises. Abraham knows God's promises that through Isaac, the whole world is going to be blessed. It's living in the tension of holding to him, believing in God's promises and the temptation to doubt them. He's feeling that right now. Wait, wait. He's holding to faith. God, you've promised this of Isaac. In my family, I'm going to try to believe it, but I'm feeling the temptation, certainly as a human being, to doubt. God, why would you do this? And the story begins to speed up. It feels illogical. It feels like it doesn't make any sense. Abraham wakes up in the morning. He gets everything ready. He saddles the donkey. He gets two servants, two young men to come with him and to work alongside of him. And he tells Isaac, hey, we're going on a journey. And it's very clear that they're going on a journey to give an offering to God because there's very specific things they need to bring. Something for, to create fire and a knife and wood and all of this. And they kind of saddle up and they begin to head out. Now, as we move through the text, here's what it says. 
It says that they begin to go to three-day journey from where they are to Mount Moriah. That's also important because three days in the Bible is always a symbol that God is preparing something. Three days is a time of preparation for God to do something miraculous or to teach something profound or to deliver. God puts Moses in the wilderness for three days before he's called to be the deliverer. God uses Esther for three days to prepare a banquet to deliver God's people. And God takes his only son, Jesus, and crucifies him. And he's buried in the ground for how long? Three days. Before he's re- he comes back from the dead, resurrected. Three days is a time of preparation for God to do something miraculous and powerful. So he, he goes, Abraham, they're on the donkeys. They have everything they need. Isaac's with them, two young men, and they go on this three-day journey. They get to the bottom of the mountain of Moriah where Jerusalem will one day be. They get off, and Abraham says to the two young men, you guys stay here. And then he makes this really bizarre comment. He says, you stay here. We are going to go up there and worship, and we will come back to you. Now, remember, he has everything prepared to sacrifice Isaac. You're going to see the wood and the knife and the flame. Everything is prepared. And yet he makes the statement to the two young men that he's going to come back down the mountain at some point with Isaac. We're going to worship, and we're coming back. What does that mean? See, as he's living in the tension of this command from God, which feels absurd, it feels illogical. He's holding on to God's promises. He's feeling certainly the weight of what is taking place and what God is calling him to believe and to trust. And it, what is coming out of him is not that he's doubting God's promises, but he's believing them so strongly that he believes that even if he is called to kill his only son Isaac, God will raise him from the dead. We know that because the book of Hebrews tells us that that's exactly what he believed. That Abraham believed that even if God were to call him to kill Isaac, he believed so strongly that he would bring him back from the dead. They'd walk down that mountain to those two men, just like he said. You feel the tension. You can see the faith rising out of Abraham to hold to the promises of God. Even what, what he's called to believe feels absurd and illogical. So he says that. We're going to go up there and worship. We're going to come back down. So at the base of the mountain, it says that the the wood is put on Isaac's back. So Isaac is carrying the wood that he's going to be laid upon for sacrifice. And he's carrying it up the mountain. As they're walking up the mountain, Isaac, still in the dark, looks to Abraham and says, Hey, Dad. Abraham says, Yes, my son. Isaac says, Hey, listen. um, Where's the lamb? Like, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? Can you imagine how that felt for Abraham? Here's what Abraham does not do. He doesn't fumble over his words. Well, um, so let me tell you. uh, So we're going to catch it there somewhere. Um, he He doesn't fumble. Here's what he says. Isaac, my son, God's going to provide. He's going to provide the lamb. He's going to provide the sacrifice. So they're walking up. Isaac is like, hey, God's going to provide. I mean, he's learning faith through Abraham, his father, in this moment. They're walking up there. They get up to the top of the mountain. There's no lamb there. There's, There's no wildlife at all. They begin to build the altar, constructing the wood. 
You can see the tension building. Can you imagine how, what Abraham is thinking in this moment? Everything gets ready, and then Abraham takes his son, and he lays him on the wood. And what would have happened, same with the animals, is that they, in, when they would sacrifice an animal in the Old Testament, they'd tie them down. So he would have laid him down, he would have been tying him with ropes. I mean, you could feel the silence, you can feel the weight. I, I, I like to imagine Abraham there in that moment, like avoiding eye contact, you know. Like just holding to the promises of God and, and just praying silently, like, God, please, like, I trust you. I don't understand what you're doing. Why are you asking me to do this? And he's tying his legs. And all of a sudden, he gets to that moment. He's tied up. He's laying on the altar. And his hands are shaking. And he comes and he grabs a knife. I could just say, please, God, please. Please, don't, don't make me. I don't know what you're doing. I don't understand what's happening. And he pulls back. And guess what it says? Abraham, Abraham, right there in that moment, stops. See, I want you to see something. Before we see what God does, you're seeing something about the faith of Abraham. And you're seeing something about not only the quality of his faith, but what true faith looks like. See, faith lives in the tension between trusting God's promises and the temptation to doubt them. Faith is real. Can you imagine how he felt? He doesn't want to tell Isaac. He doesn't want to tell anyone. It's between him and God. It feels illogical. It feels absurd. But he's trusting that God is going to make a way. He's going to provide. Somehow he doesn't know how. But he keeps following God's command all the way until the end. Listen, I got these. You may be wondering why I have two sticks on stage. Let me show you why. Okay? Listen. A lot of people believe that they, their faith is very cold, it's very robotic. So what happens is this, you're living your life of faith, you believe in God, you believe in the gospel, you believe in the Bible, you're living, you're believing, you want to believe the promises of God, and then there are things that happen in life that come upon you, that affect you, begin to struggle, things that God calls you to believe, and it feels illogical, it feels absurd. Other people tell you, you shouldn't live like that, you shouldn't act like that, you shouldn't choose that. Why would you restrict yourself from that you read passages in the bible you're like god i don't know and you feel the tension and when your faith is cold when it's robotic when it's like well i'm just supposed to not feel that you compartmentalize your feelings you're not honest with god in prayer you're not honest about the struggle that you feel you're not living in tension you just like i'm not supposed to believe that good christians don't think that way when you feel like that your your faith breaks because you're not supposed to live faith that goes like that you're supposed to feel the tension to be a real person. Here's another kind of faith, okay? The other kind of faith is like this. You believe in God. You believe in Jesus. You believe in the Holy Spirit. You believe in the Bible. You believe all of it. You've been raised in church. Maybe you started coming to church in the last couple years. But your faith is really shallow, and it's actually quite weak. Because you, your faith has been built upon the parts of the Bible that you like. The parts that make you feel better, the parts that are comfortable, the parts that you accept. You've just skipped through a lot of passages. You figuratively cut them out of the Bible. You, you know, it, you maybe jumped around to different churches, making sure that you find one that completely agrees with you. I'm not thinking of anyone in particular, okay? Like, I'm just talking in general. But let's be honest. There's a lot of us that have faith that's weak. It's shallow. It's based upon very little. We haven't done the deep work. We're not honest with God. And so what happens is you come to a church, you encounter another person, you read God's word, and you begin to read something that feels absurd. 
illogical. Like that's not how you can live in 2022. You can't be like that. You can't think like that. And so your faith breaks. You're like, I'm done with that. You know, I'm whatever. Here's what faith is supposed to be like, okay? Faith is like this. I don't even know what this is. <laughs> faith lives in the tension. Faith lives in the tension where there are a lot of times in life where things come upon you, where you're asked to believe things, you read the Bible, you hear a sermon, you're in a small group, and something is being pressed upon you, some type of change in your life, some type of repentance, some type of truth that comes before you, and you're like, ah, that's uncomfortable, and other people around you are like, don't believe that. Why would you believe that about God? Why would you trust that? And what happens is you start to bend. Faith bends, but it doesn't break. If you read the Psalms, guess what you read? David's prayers and the prayers of many other people where their faith is bending. They're like, God, I feel like you've forsaken me. God, I have no idea where you are. What are you doing? But why is it bending and not breaking? Because they're clinging to the promises of God. Even when what God is asking, even when the truth that is before you or the conviction that the Holy Spirit brings you feels illogical and absurd and you can't see a way through how it's good or how it will produce what you deeply desire for it to produce, when you hold to the promises of God, your faith bends, but it doesn't break. That's exactly what's happening with Abraham here. His faith is bending, certainly. It has to be bending. But he's clinging so deeply to the promises of God that what is welling up in him as he's tying his son down, as he pulls the knife out of his pocket, is that, God, even if you ask me to go through with this, I believe that you're going to bring him back from the dead. There's no precedent for that. I believe you're going to do that. Faith is bending. He's living in the tension. Verse 9 says this. Genesis 22, verse 9. So Abraham built the altar. Verse 10, sorry. He reached his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord came from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Verse 12, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. See, when you read that, and, and it feels like, wait, wait, maybe this, was this really just a test to see if he would choose right? No, remember, he's not testing him to entice him to do wrong. He's looking to strengthen and to reveal and to teach him something. God knows what's going to happen. He's all-knowing. What it's speaking about is like, now, Abraham, it's revealed to you, it's revealed to your son, and it's revealed to all of us the quality of faith. That your faith lives in tension. That you claimed and believed the promises of God so deeply that you were able to trust me and follow me even when what I was asking felt absurd and illogical to you. Now you see. Now I see. Now everyone sees what real faith looks like. It lives in the tension and it holds deeply to the promises of God so that you can combat the temptation to doubt them. That's what is revealed. And then what Abraham says right after that in worship is that on this mountain, the Lord will provide. Now, here, here's, what, here's what's so peculiar. Again, remember magnifying glass. God provides a substitute there. 
He provides the sacrifice. Abraham was right. God's going to provide the sacrifice because Abraham looks over and now there was no animal before. Now there's a ram caught in a thorn bush by its head. That's what he sacrifices, not Isaac. But he uses the language of future tense. Not, God, you're going to provide right now, but you're going to provide on this mountain. He says, on this mountain, you're going to provide in the future. Remember I told you, look in, hard work of interpretation. Notice the details of this passage. The father sets out to offer up his son as a sacrifice. They take a three-day journey to Mount Moriah, where Jerusalem will one day be. The son carries the wood on his back up the mountain to the place where he is to be offered as a sacrifice. He's laid upon that wood, and he's strapped down. He's held down. And then as Abraham, as the father, pulls back the knife to slaughter his son, God intervenes and provides a substitute, which is a ram caught in a thorn bush by his head. Do you notice any details here? Do you notice that this story is a testimony of the son, but not of Isaac, of the true promised son, the true hope of the world, the one who a few thousand years later will what? Will go to Jerusalem because the father... God the Father has set out to offer his son as a sacrifice. And Jesus, the only son of God the Father, will carry on his back the wooden cross up the mountain of Moriah. Calgary, where Jesus was crucified, is Mount Moriah. And he will be laid on top of that wood and strapped down through nails on his hands and his feet and lifted up. But this time, the father will not stop. The son will be sacrificed. And what is Jesus wearing when he's on that? A crown of thorns. See, the title that Jesus often uses for himself is the Lamb of God. See, on that day in Genesis 22, God provided a ram with a crown of thorns head stuck in a thorn bush as a sacrifice. Thousands of years later, God the Father will send his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, wearing a crown of thorns to be sacrificed on that same exact hill. Abraham said the Lord will provide, and God did. That's exactly what it is revealing and what it is speaking to. This is what God has given us. This is the gospel. This is why your faith can live in tension. It's not cold and robotic. It should not be shallow and weak. It should be living in the tension. Why? Why can you, listen to this, why can you believe God, trust his word, trust the conviction of the spirit, even when what you are being told, what you're being called to believe, feels illogical and absurd by the world's standards. Why can you believe it? Why can you live in the tension of that? Even when it's, you feel like you want to doubt it, you want to run away from it, but you can believe in it. Because if you believe in Jesus, you truly believe in Jesus, your faith at its inception was founded upon something that other people say is absurd and illogical. 
That God the Father sent his only son, Jesus, fully God and fully man, who died for your sins on the cross, was buried in the grave for three days, and came alive from the dead. To so many people, that is illogical and absurd. And yet, guess what? For those of us of faith, for the church, for the people of God, that is truth. So when you can believe something that other people say is illogical and other people say is absurd, guess what? It gives you the strength and the form of your faith to live in the tension when God asks you to believe other things that feel illogical and absurd to you and to other people because you trust his promises. Abraham trusted God's promises because he never failed to deliver. And God has never failed to deliver with you. Your timing may be different. You may struggle to understand what God is asking of you. The way that he's testing you may be to strengthen you. And you may not like it. It may be difficult. But it is for your good. And you need to live in the tension of that. Don't compartmentalize your feelings. Your faith will break. Don't run away from hard passages and hard truth. Your faith will break. Live in the tension of it. Trust God. Allow him to strengthen you because you're holding to his promises. See, John the Baptist says when he sees Jesus coming, look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He pulls that right up of what Genesis 22 is pointing to. And when you are feeling that tension in your faith, when you feel like it's, it's, it's weakening, you feel like you're bending, it's the same command. It's what the Bible is pointing us to in every single passage, the testimony of the Son. Look to Jesus the author and perfecter of your faith, the one who gives strength, the one who gives form, the one who enables you to trust in God's promises even when they're illogical and absurd because you believe in Jesus whose life and his death and his resurrection to so many was illogical and absurd and yet it was true. Why would you doubt that God cannot work truth and good in the things that you and your finite mind believe don't make sense? He can and he will. I pray that you believe that. Live in the tension of faith. Will you pray with me? God, I pray that we would be people that live in the tension of faith. That we would not run from difficulty, that we would not run from things that feel uncomfortable, but we would pull out a magnifying glass and investigate the convictions of our heart. We'd investigate your word to see what you're calling us to believe to believe that it is good when, even when it doesn't make sense to us. Because you are always good and your plan is good and we don't understand it, we confess. I pray for any of us here today. If we feel as if our faith is weak or shallow, that you would strengthen by looking at you, Jesus. That you would give form again. I pray for any of us that our faith is kind of cold and robotic. We've just been conditioned to believe. And we've compartmentalized our feelings away from our faith for fear that that's not how Christians are supposed to feel. Would you, Holy Spirit, rush in and allow us to be honest and to feel truly and really what is happening in our lives, but to see that you can root us in your promises and live in the tension. God, we, like Abraham, don't understand sometimes. But you call us to trust. He is the example to us. The quality of faith that lives in tension. 
It's the kind of faith we want to have. It's in Jesus' name we pray.